Welcome to the Improv in Practice podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Wilson, bringing you interviews, inspiration, and information on improvised theater with Synergy Theater. You can find Synergy Theater's classes, workshops, performances, and more at synergytheater.com. That's S-Y-N-E-R-G-Y theater.com. Okay, lights down, curtain up. Hello, friends. It is September 10th, 2023, as I record this. Adrian Posada is a performing member of Synergy Theater. We talk about Adrian's experiences in improv and about the unique way Adrian uses physicality to create worlds and enhance his performances. Z is for Zombie at the Lesher Center in Walnut Creek starting October 19th is a favorite for Adrian. Get your tickets now, take your brains, to SynergyTheater.com and click on Performances. One last thing. I have some improv homework for you. In your imagination, design a purple hat for someone you know really well, one that they'd like. Then go to this person and ask them to play this game with you. Say, I'm giving you a purple hat. Then ask them, what does it look like? Ask them to describe the hat to you in detail. I was inspired to do this myself after this interview, and I found the experience enlightening. I hope you do too. Okay, on to the interview. Adrian Bosada, you are here with Val and I, and I am so excited. Oh, wow. Well, thank you. And yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Awesome. So I think I want to begin with your experience as the technical director for Femproviser Fest 2020. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, actually, that brings back memories. I was approached by Jill Eichmann, who is the artistic director at Lila, and she asked me if she, if I wanted to help out that year for Femprovisor Fest. And the overall gig was basically doing more of the tech side of things. And like working the lights and organizing the performers and making sure that we have the running order and things like that. Can you tell us more about what that event is about and what you enjoyed about it? Yes, yes, of course. So the event itself is an event celebrating female improvisers or female presenting improvisers. And it's essentially a weekend, right? So it starts on a Friday and ends on a Sunday. And we get improvisers from all over the country. And in fact, I think that particular year that I was there, we had some international improvisers as well. The idea is to celebrate them and to get to enjoy their creativity and, and yeah, the, their fun. And your connection with this uh, came from your belonging to Leela, which is an improv group, a longstanding improv group out of San Francisco. Uh, would you like to talk to us a little bit about Leela and your experiences there? Yeah, sure. The company itself was founded by Jill and Christopher Eichmann. And when I first moved to San Francisco, which was back in 2015, the first thing that I did was to look up an improv group because I was already in, in love with improv. And I saw Leela because I was living in the Tenderloin at that time, and they are really close by. So uh, I joined a drop-in class with Leela, and, and it was wonderful. They're over at the Chronicle building, which is downtown. 
and they had the entire basement where they held the drop-ins and they had 30 or to 35 people join in with two instructors and then they, they would split us up and the cool thing about that was that they had some beginners like they had a beginner group and then they had the advanced group but they were all playing together right so so that was really cool and that's what really attracted me to them but i just kept going now you say you had a love of improv before you even moved to san francisco so where did that love of improv come from before san francisco i was living in los angeles i had moved there around 2012 and i moved there on a whim i just packed everything into my car and i had like maybe five grand in my bank account. And, and so uh, when I moved there, I, I, the only person that I knew was uh, a, a buddy that I went to college with. So, so I reached out to him and asked him, Hey, can we like live together? <laughs> so yeah, I moved over there and I had no friends, right? I, I had just gone there on a whim, right? And I wanted to start getting out of my shell because I had at that time, like crippling stage fright and like crippling social anxiety. So, so it's like, I'm going to get out of my shell and I'm going to do something that will force me to stand up in front of people and, and talk. So I found this group called Improv Masters, which was kind of a fusion of improv and Toastmasters. That group was basically half of it was dedicated to doing the, the Toastmasters very you know, strict kind of curriculum. But then the second half was dedicated to just doing short form improv games like you would see in Whose Line Is It Anyway, right? I ended up not loving the Toastmasters side of it, but the improv I absolutely adored. And so that's what kept me going to, to that group. And so I did that for about two years. And then when I moved to San Francisco, I just kept going. What was it about improv that struck a chord? I think it was the ability that it has to allow you or basically you allow yourself to be whoever you want to be on stage versus following the, the norms that are kind of set out for you or the rituals that you would follow when you have to engage with someone socially. Being able to get on stage and, and play this role and explore your relationship with whoever is on stage with you and experiment and, and try new things and, and say things that you normally wouldn't say in your real life. That was very liberating for me. And so how did your improv practice help you? I happen to know that, that you do have experience as a Spanish teacher for kids in grades first through sixth. Now, mm -hmm. talk about a tough audience. <laughs> <laughs> how, please tell us about improv and your experiences as a teacher. When I was in high school, junior year and senior year, I worked for a before and after school program with the city of Reno Parks and Rec Department. And part of that program involved getting specialized instructors for the kids. And I was one of those instructors. And I would go around different schools every day and have maybe about half an hour to an hour worth of teaching them Spanish. And, and of course, it, it is a very broad group of, of students that, that are all different levels, right? So it was really interesting to try to come up with a curriculum that would fit everybody, right? And that could help everybody. So I did that for a couple of years. Are you still teaching today? No, no, I stopped teaching Spanish. Oh, we, we got to get you back into it. <laughs> yeah, honestly, back then, I, my Spanish was great because I used it all the time. Now, it may not be as great as it was back then. 
Oh, well, again, we've got to get you back into it because please tell us how has improv informed you and made you more comfortable in front of others? Sure, sure, sure. Like I mentioned before, because it's so liberating to get on stage and have this relationship with with your partner that is outside of the norms that you would typically have, it makes it really easy for me to feel confident, right? Like it makes me, it makes it so much easier to be able to come outside uh, of the stage and, and have a conversation with someone because I have gotten to explore how to have conversations in different ways that I normally wouldn't have because I suffered from some anxiety. There's some a show or a movie, excuse me, that I forget the title of, but it was by Keegan-Michael Key, and it was about a set of improvisers. One of the characters in that movie said something that was very powerful to me, which was that when he gets on stage, he feels like he's Superman. And when you're off stage and, and you're living your regular life, you, you may be working on nine to five and not feel like you're making much of a difference or that you're being seen. But when you're on stage, you feel like no matter what you do, you have some power, some space to occupy. Uh, I feel like that's my inspiration when it comes to what improv does. Oh, I love my that. Personal life. Yeah, that's that's really great. And do you do any teaching with Leela? So I do. I taught with Leela for maybe about three years. And before then, I used to also teach with uh, Berkeley Improv. So so I've done a lot of teaching uh, when it comes to improv, yes. I hear that you are a part of a couple improv groups. How did you find your way to Synergy Theater? Ah, yes. <laughs> so there's a bit of a story. To that. So as I mentioned, the first year that I lived here, I joined Leela. And through my journey with Leela, I, I auditioned for one of their programs that allows you to, to become part of an ensemble. And within that ensemble, I met someone named Chris, and he was a teacher at Berkeley Improv, and he was going to stop teaching with Berkeley. He asked me if I wanted to take over his spot. And so I met Heather Clake, who at the time was the director of uh, Berkeley Improv. And we had a conversation and I took over his class in improv level one. While I was teaching there, Heather and Ken Adams, who's, as you know, as the Synergy Theater director, were coming up with a concept called Black Box Imp Improv Fusion, which was going to be a, a mix of Synergy Theater and Berkeley Improv, and it was going to be a short-form ensemble that played together every Monday. I was invited to join them, and so I did, and I met Ken Adams that way. After a while of doing that ensemble, he asked me if I was interested in auditioning with uh, Synergy Theater. And, I mean, having met him and having played with him and others that are currently in, in the Synergy Theater, like Arastu, a I, I had such a good time that I couldn't say no. So I auditioned and joined and the rest is history. Well, I love watching you on stage. There's a an energy about you. It's a, <laughs> it's an unpredictableness and you're fantastic at using the space around you in a way that makes it so imaginative and yet so real. So for example, you. you could be a character that is reaching for something in this space and you you do it with such ease and with such certainty that it it just makes it so so real and then also your command of different types of accents and voices is very impressive so we do know that uh, improv has many benefits as you've talked about as far as being able to 
think on your feet in front of people. What about an influence that improv might have in a job interview? And you may know what I'm getting at here. Uh, and that is, can you tell us a little bit about So You Want a Job? Ah, <laughs> yes, yes. So with Leela, the ensemble that I was a part of was called Yum. And one of the castmates that I had with that ensemble, she had this concept of doing sort of a date show. But instead of it being a date, it was a show to be hired for a particular job. And the idea was that we would have one person that is the interviewer and then three people that are the interviewees. We would come in on stage and each of us would have a character and we would have to answer all of the interview questions that were suggested by the audience using the lens of that character. It was really fun to play around with that. Well, I feel like based on your performances in that show that you could nail any job interview. <laughs> well, thank you. Do, thank you. Do, don't you think? I mean, now going forward, are you going to be nervous at all as as far as going into a, an interview goes? It's funny that you mentioned that because I still get nervous, right? That is something that still happens to me. But what happens is the nervousness comes five minutes before the actual show. And then five minutes or or whatever event it is, right? it could be the a job interview or whatever the case it is. And then you sit down and then you have five minutes of, of the shakes during whatever event it is. And then after that, you settle in and move forward. And before I couldn't handle those five minutes of the shakes and, and I would allow those five minutes to extend throughout the whole event. And now through the experience that I've had, I feel like I am able to to recognize that, yes, you're going to be nervous for the first five minutes of the thing. And then after that, you're just going to settle in and, and it's going to be great. So I think I take that into whatever I do. So yes, I, to answer your question, I do still get nervous, but I know now that it's going to be fine. I'm able to settle in and get out of it pretty quickly. I'm impressed because I think most people, and Val, maybe you chime in here too. I think most people think, oh, well, just being nervous at work or um, when I'm asked to address a group, that's just something that I've got to muscle through and there's really nothing I can do about it. I feel like that's the prevailing thought. But you, Adrian, you saw that as something that you could work on. Val, what's your thoughts on that? So many thoughts. And mostly I'm just surprised again that, Adrian, that you, you admitted to having a, like a bit of stage fright when it doesn't show at all no I it mean, doesn't you, you just seem super confident you're so charming you automatically win the audience over every time and so that, that's that's a bit of a relief to hear that like oh he's he's actually normal because <laughs> I have enormous stage right and nobody likes speaking in front of the class and I think mostly it's just getting out of your head getting out of your own way overthinking and just start doing it you know just jump right into it like if you had to jump into a freezing ocean you just do it what i did and want to it, ask sure. <laughs> adrian the first show i remember you in the first time i saw a show was sherlock holmes oh nice <laughs> that's when griffin got his start right and mm -hmm. yeah of course everyone i just met for the first time including you and i was so shocked at how physical <laughs> your character was and I think Ken had you jumping through a window like five times because you were so good at it. And I, I was thinking, I always meant to ask Griffin, like, was he like a previous stuntman or something? <laughs> so are you, were you? 
<laughs> no, no, I certainly wasn't a stunt man. I really enjoy using my body to, to, to make people laugh. Even when I was a kid, like I, I've always been the kid that walks around dancing and doing silly noises and what maybe, but no, definitely not a stunt person. No. Wow. You could have fooled me. Like, yeah. Ken knows you're so good at it. So he, he takes advantage of it a bit. You know, he gets like, oh, I can milk it for three more laughs if Adrian just falls again and again yeah. and again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned that because two nights ago we had a rehearsal and for some reason, this particular run of rehearsals, I have decided that I want to run in front of trucks on stage <laughs> and and roll around after I get hit by by the truck. And so, yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's a thing I do. That was a great question, Val. And I don't blame you for thinking that he could have been a stunt double because he did move to San Francisco from L.A. And what what else does one do in L.A. but work in the entertainment industry? Am I right? I'm guessing maybe that, Adrian, your background in animation, did you do that in when you lived in L.A.? Yeah. So that is the reason I moved to L.A., like many other people, I'm sure. Uh, I wanted to work in in animation. Specifically, I wanted to work for Pixar. So I moved to Los Angeles. I went to the Art Institute of California there and took about a year and a half worth of uh, art classes and animation classes and media. And I didn't really finish the the program, but I learned so much. And I learned so many things from animation that I apply to improv now. One of the, the tricks that you do when you are animating is you set a mirror next to your desk and you make gestures so that you can see what that gesture looks like. So when you're drawing, you, you can match it, you can copy it. And from doing that, I got to learn a lot of what gestures look like and how to make them with my own face so that I can express whatever emotion or whatever feeling I want my character to express. So there's a lot of crossover from that to this, to improv, which I thought was pretty cool. Ah, okay. Yes, that is making a lot of sense now. Give me an instance that maybe today you had an improvised thought or a performance type thought or something that is improv based that influenced your attitude just today. Okay. All right. Well, let me let me think about that. Mm-hmm. Not to put you on the spot, but for sure. for me, sometimes a, a negative thought will pop into my head, and we don't know where thoughts come from, right? Like, where where are they before they get here, and then where do they go when they're not here? I mean, what are thoughts anyway? Sometimes <laughs> a thought that I didn't see coming will pop into my head. And now with my improv training, I can see that thought as just something random that I can maybe play with and turn around and expand on, but not in a negative way, kind of uh, flip it. Does this resonate with you? It does. It does. And actually, it, made, it did make me think of, of a concept that I think I, I apply quite often nowadays because of improv, which is eye contact right? When you're having a conversation with someone and, and making eye contact with them, like it, it allows that conversation to be so much deeper and so much more grounded than you normally would have if you're dodging the eyes of the other person, which is my initial instinct to do. And and so forcing myself to make that eye contact and maintain it in a not threatening way, right? Like I don't want to bore a hole through their skull through, with my eyes, but just Soft eye contact is, is super valuable and makes the conversations feel more personal and more connecting. Yes, yes, absolutely. And also something that I think 
well, I hope, is not becoming less common, if that makes sense. Because we're, I have to, sorry, I have to say this, because our devices, whatever mm-hmm. ones we have, are so enthralling that our attention, our gaze, our eyes are often drawn from wherever we are or whoever we're looking at to our wrist or to our hand where we're holding whatever device. So I, yes, eye contact is even more important. Now, if you're really looking to be in the moment with whoever you're with and make an impact with your presence. Yeah, absolutely. That brings me back to your style on stage, which I, again, find always full of a static energy, which I really appreciate. I know that you like to take risks in your performances. Can you speak about your thinking behind that? Yeah. When it comes to taking risks, specifically with taking risks using physicality and and making random gestures and see what they lead to or random movements and see where they lead to came from great teachers that I had. I have one specific teacher who taught a class on world creation. One of the things he said that was very valuable and and I apply a lot to my fiscality and taking risks with that fiscality is that uh, a lot of times we get stuck on what to do next on stage because we want to make sure that whatever we do is going to A, take in the the previous offer and honor it and B, become that perfect puzzle piece that fits in this puzzle that every everyone on stage is putting together. And so we get in our heads trying to think of like, what should I do? And, or, or how can I make this perfect piece fit? But this teacher uh, said one thing that was very, very profound to me, which was, if you ever get into the mind state, just go get a hat. And what he meant by that was that just walk across the stage and go get a hat from the other side of the stage and and come back. Everything that you did throughout that movement, and it doesn't have to be getting a hat, it can be whatever. But the point is that when you make those movements and something is going to happen throughout that movement that is going to inspire either you or is going to inspire someone else to continue the the scene, that movement itself is an offer. Whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. Something as monotonous or as easy as getting a hat. That is a concept that I apply to everything that I do on stage. If I feel stuck at any point, just do something, just make a move. And it's, it's worked out for me so far. I love that. Now you said that this was uh, from an instructor on Mm -hmm. world creation. Now I'm thinking that world creation, as far as during a, a performance goes on stage. So could you speak to a little bit more about what you learned, um, how you can go about creating a world? Yes, and this is my favorite subject. So yes, I can certainly talk. There are uh, many things that make it easier to create a world and makes it easier for the audience to see the world that you're trying to create. One of them is that when you're on stage in an improv stage, you don't always get to play with actual props. A lot of times you have to mimic whatever props you need to show in your world. One of the things that is really useful is to understand that these objects, these props, they have weight to them. They have a size. They have a smell. They have texture. They have a feeling that that object might bring to your character. All of these different things that object has. It is easier to portray this object when you remember 
any of these details. Right? A simple example is if you're trying to hold a ball in your hand and let's say a bowling ball, right? It is easy to remember that you have that bowling ball in your hand when you're on stage if you actually tense your muscles as if it were heavy. Because then you're like, why am I tensing my muscles when you had a conversation with someone? And if you may have forgotten about your object, but then you're like, why am I tensing my muscles? Oh, that's right. I'm holding a bowling ball. So that concept is, I think, is really cool. Uh, and it came from that class and, and from many other classes. And the other items or the other details, like the object having a smell, if you take a moment and think about what, what smell that object has, is going to inform perhaps how your face is reacting to that object. And then you may take on that face. And if you forget about that object, you, can, you, you may still have that face or that emotion and you're going to think, why do I have this? Oh, that's right, because I have this object that I'm holding or this object that's in the room. So remembering any of these things uh, or any of these attributes of, of the objects that you're trying to portray makes it a lot easier to remember that they exist. Yes. Okay. I, I have a question. When you, Adrian, put on a hat or reach for an object of value in a scene, whatever it may be, are you picturing it in your hand? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And then if you're in a performance and you reach for a hat and then let's say a couple of days go by and then you're in the next performance and it could be a different show and you reach for a hat, is it the same hat? That's an interesting thought. I had never thought about that. It's not. It's not. And the reason is because a lot of the uh, attributes to that object are informed by whichever scene you're currently in. I picture what the hat looking like, whatever uh, attributes have been brought in for that particular performance. So I would say, no, I'd say the hat itself is always different. Well, you and I could both picture a purple hat, but my purple hat will be different in shape than yours. What do you think informs that fact that the hat that you would envision would be different than mine? So obviously just from the fact that you and I are two different people, right? And that we may have had experiences with purple hats that are totally different, right? But that I think that is the beauty of it, right? And that is where the uh, spontaneity comes in because maybe I have a, a, the image of a hat that is purple and has like a, a furry texture. I, I forget what the name of it felt, like a felty texture. But I don't, I don't say that to you. I just make the hat purple. And so you may think that the hat is leather. At some point, uh, one of us is going to call out what that material is. And one of us is going to be surprised by that. And then we get to play around with the fact that we're surprised by it. We get to react to that new information. Because we have this difference of experience, uh, whenever we discover that whatever we're seeing or whatever we're trying to portray to the audience is, in fact, different than we originally thought, allows for really cool discovery on stage. Yes, definitely. And I'm also thinking if I was to picture a purple hat that you would have and put on your head, the purple hat that I would design for you would be different than the one that you designed for yourself. And that would also be true if you were to think of a hat that I would wear on my head and imagine it in my hands for me to wear. And I'm fascinated by our assignments of design for each other that would not likely match what we would 
designed for ourselves. So if I gave you uh, a flower and you accepted the flower, the flower in your hand would look different to you than the flower that I've envisioned in your hand. And that's just fascinating to me. And I think that is an aspect of improv that I haven't really thought of before. Of course, there are differences because yes, we all come to our interactions with each other with different frames of reference, but it's still a flower. <laughs> There's the common ground, but we get yeah. to, yeah, we get to the decorate it however we want individually and then kind of share that decoration with each other, which is kind of cool. Yeah. And what I've noticed also that you're so adept in doing is with your physicality and how you handle an object, it helps me envision more of what you are envisioning. And I'm wondering, is that a conscious choice or is that a, a, an unconscious choice? It's definitely a conscious choice. My goal is always to make it easy for the audience to know what I'm holding. I'm not a big fan of throwing curveballs to the audience. If I'm holding a bat and it is fairly obvious that I'm holding a bat. I don't want to later turn around and say, by the way, this the whole time this was a katana, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't want to trick the audience. I want, I want them to go on the journey with me. And I don't feel the need to subvert their reality at any point. The surprise will come without me having to force it. That's my goal. I love that experience when we're watching an improvised performance. There is, I think, this drive this instinct of the audience to be in the same headspace as the performers and the two are trying to meet. So just like two improvisers in a scene are working together to be in sync, so too are the audience and the performers overall. And I love those moments of meeting where what the improviser is offering the audience, the audience accepts and understands and realizes. And those are just magical moments. Does, does that resonate with you? Oh, absolutely. That is what I live for. The moments when you notice and you can feel that connection with the audience where everyone is on the same page and you know it and gives you, first off, feels great. And second, it gives you more freedom to explore with the audience where the scene might go next, to react to the audience themselves and allow them to be part of the scene in a way, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yes. And I just love that openness and willingness when it comes in the audience, like we're ready and waiting there for you, the performers to meet you. I just love that. And then when it happens, it's, it's wonderful. Now we are about a month away from Z is for zombie with Synergy yes. Theater. And the last rehearsal that you had was for Z is for zombie. It was. Yeah, it was this last Thursday. Okay, wonderful. So as far as creating a world goes, I happen to know that the set design is taking place right now. But with the Synergy Theater sets, they're very minimal. They just give hints, really. And I'm interested to see how the improvisers are going to create this world, which is a world being taken over by zombies, how they are going to create this world with very few props and really just a mood. What are you looking forward to in Z is for Zombie with Synergy Theater? When I first joined Synergy Theater, my very first show was Z is for Zombie. So there is a very special place in my heart for this particular show. I love the concept. And again, going back to my favorite thing to do, which is to use my body to tell a story. This particular show allows 
for much more physicality and it encourages it because you have to take the appearance of a zombie or perhaps the appearance of someone turning into a zombie, which is really fun to play with. That is something that I'm looking forward to. And one of the props that we do use, and I'm not sure if we're going to use it or not for this show, is is just body parts, right? <laughs> Little plastic <laughs> body parts that we get to throw around and pretend to eat as zombies. So I'm just really looking forward to this. Have the rehearsals been fun? Or I guess I should ask how fun have the rehearsals been? And then also uh, what Synergy Theater does so well is they do bring, even in a show that the audience may suspect is going to be silly, you always do such a great job of bringing in the heart of characters and anchoring the show with characters that you actually do really care about. So can you speak to a little bit about what's been going on in rehearsal? We have absolutely been focusing on the heart. It is very fun to to do all of the action sequences, right? It's very fun to do all of the hints of like, who might be a zombie, who might not be a zombie. Um, but overall, the reason this particular show works is because the characters have to be lovable in order for the actual turnings to be powerful for the audience to really care when when a particular character is turned into a zombie. It doesn't work without the heart. So we are absolutely focusing on that. Oh, man. I can't wait. Val, I know you've got questions. Yeah. Also great to know that was your first show. So now second time around as a zombie or zombie hunter or not. I can't wait. I can't wait. And I, I do hope you use some body parts. That would be awesome. Or at least put them on the table when people walk in. <laughs> yeah, set the mood. The yeah. I do want to comment. One of the most brilliant things I remember from the last show, um, A Roll of the Dice, is when somebody had a location as grandma's bedroom, you immediately took on the role of an elderly gentleman with a walker. And the whole audience just loved that so much. I mean, you're a young man. And you embodied an, an elderly person so perfectly on stage, the, the movements. And I just want to know, how did you know to act so mature? A lot of the ideas that happen on stage are a reaction to what somebody else did. So I noticed that another castmate, Eileen, had taken on the role of the grandma. And so I was like, I'm just going to mirror Eileen. I'm just going to do what she's doing. And add one detail that's off. So she was in a wheelchair. And so I was like, I'll be in a walker. When I came out, I was like, that's it. That's my character. We'll see what happens after that. That was so fun. And then I think Griffin later on, you guys mimicked that the battle in Up where <laughs> two geriatric characters are just <laughs> fighting, but they're not physically strong. But it was such a winning moment. Everybody just loved that. And I record every show now, and I can't wait to watch that one again and post it for everyone to see. Yeah, that was also my favorite. My highlight from this show is the the fight I had with Griffin as two old people <laughs> in slow yeah. motion, but not really. <laughs> and I, I'm sure we all want to see a zombie fight where your body parts are falling off. Like, okay, <laughs> how are they going to fight now with no arms and one leg? Right. Oh, oh my gosh, Val. Okay, so th there's a name for people who really like zombies. And I have some zombie trivia for you guys if you're interested. Oh, wow, Sarah. Yes. Okay, okay. Bring it. All right, so people who like zombies are called zombophiles. So Val, I would put you in that camp. The other end of the spectrum for people who have a deep fear of zombies, they're known as 
Well, the phobia is known as kinamortophobia. What? Huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Kinamortophobia. So yeah. I'd love to see a scene, <laughs> an improvised scene between a zombophile and someone who has a phobia of zombies. Oh my gosh. Mm, yes. yes. That would be the ultimate. Yes. That would be awesome. Now, I don't think I'm going to surprise you, but people have been afraid of other people coming back from the dead for a long time. People were scared of zombies way back in ancient Greece. And evidence of this archaeologists found in ancient graves, which contain skeletons pinned down by rocks. Oh, what? Oh, wow. <laughs> Jeez. That doesn't surprise me. You're right. But because, yeah, I mean, there's so much folklore, too, about undead things like vampires. And, and is that why they nail coffins? It's just like, <laughs> right. Don't, don't get out. Like, <laughs> wow, that's so cool, Sarah. Yeah, cool. you look this up. That's awesome. Now, what, what else do you have? Oh, sure thing. Well, the 8th of October is World Zombie Day. Mm. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, cool. so so if if you see some zombie-like people shuffling around in public, <laughs> check your calendar. Me without coffee too. <laughs> Zombie-looking. <Okay>. Oh <laughs> yeah, well I guess that is pretty much every adult before the hour of eight a.m. on Monday through Friday. I have one for you guys to guess. Guess the year that the first ever film to have a zombie in it came out. Was it nineteen thirty-two? 1942 or 1952? Ooh, I have no idea. I'm going to go with 1952. I have a feeling that that's kind of the time of the horror flick where the teenagers went to the kissing hill <laughs> in the 1950s car and then the monster came out. So I'm going to guess 52. Okay. <laughs> Val, what's your guess? So I'm just going to try 1932 for heck. Why not? Okay. The answer is 1932. Oh, nice job. Yeah. Uh, what was it? <laughs> Designated by the internet. The first official zombie flick was White Zombie, directed by Victor Halperin and starring Bella Lugosi. <gasps> oh. I've heard of that now. Okay. Bella mm. Lugosi. Oh, my gosh. 1932 called White Zombie. Yeah, I have to ask you, Sarah, what does your daughter think about zombies? I cannot count the number of zombie cheerleaders on Halloween that I have seen on school campuses. Is that the, the costume to wear? Kids zombie these days. Oh Kids. my gosh. That's the cool thing about zombies is that any costume can end up being a zombie. You can layer your costumes and, and make it even more interesting. Yes. Oh, I have to say, I did get her the uh, game Plants versus Zombies. Have you guys played that game <laughs> I've heard of it. Oh, yes. No, I haven't played oh, yes. it. Is, oh, yes. Okay, Adrian, <laughs> you know exactly what I'm talking about. I love it. Yes. Quick fact about that one. The original name for that one was Lawn of the Dead. Oh, oh that's such a good name. Why didn't they go Lawn with that? I don't know. But anyway, Plants versus Zombies works for me. Yeah. Okay. I have to close us out. I have a debate question. Are you ready? Yes. Is... Frankenstein, a zombie movie or story? Mm. I'm going to say it huh. isn't because the trope of the zombie, in my opinion, is dependent on infection. And there is no infection with the Frankenstein story. 
Mm. So I'm going to say no. Excellent point. And really, there's no right answer. This is just an ongoing debate and one that I was thinking about prior to this interview. And Adrian, I see your point. Yes, because there was no contagion. Frankenstein Mm -hmm. was a corpse and then reanimated. Val, do you have an opinion? No, I feel like you're educating me (laughs) because I had to think about that. So what qualifies a zombie? I have to ask Adrian, since I'm taking you as a zombie expert now, is it all brain eating or is it just any body part? Mm, Well, let me think about that. (laughs) I've seen a lot of zombie media, so (laughs) I'm trying to think if any of them didn't eat brains. Okay. I don't know why some people assume it's a brain eating thing or it's a flesh eating or just, I've seen Walking Dead where you just bite somebody and that's it. Yeah. It's over with. Right. I wonder where, and I I don't know this, but I wonder where that brain eating thing came from. I'm thinking that because the zombie is a shuffling idiot, um, you know, like they're <laughs> not right. They're not known for their smarts, but then that would indicate that they are smart enough to know how dumb they are, and that mm. ah, there's some which... logic there. If I eat brain, I get brain. So oh. that mm. doesn't really track. Yeah, that's a paradox, a zombie paradox. That's one I haven't thought of before. Oh, no, wait. How could you be smart enough to know or to think when they're brain dead? Oh, gosh. Oh, no. And now I'm going to stay up wondering. Yeah. Uh, Adrian, do you have a favorite type of zombie that you can pull from your experiences with seeing them in film or book or, or whatever, and then... Is it the same type of zombie that you like to play? Mm, Okay. My favorite type of zombie comes from a video game called Left 4 Dead. And it is called a witch. And it's essentially a zombie that infected a woman, a pregnant woman. And you usually find her sitting somewhere in a corner of a dark room. Very, very creepy and scary. And you just hear the sobs. So when you get closer... The sobs stop, and then, and then the zombie starts chasing you, shrieking, and and I think that's such a cool concept and scary and spooky. I and, yeah. yeah, I I'm not scared of zombies, but thank you for bringing that back because, <laughs> oh man, yes, yes, super creepy, super fun. Okay, and then uh, what type of zombie do you like to play? I like to play your typical shambling zombie, but I really enjoy making the body do fun contortions to show that it's a zombie. So making the sounds of the bones kind of cracking into place <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and having the voice go deeper uh, to accentuate the fact that I am no longer a human. I am now a zombie and completely shamble around the stage. Oh, I can't wait. Val, do you have a favorite type of zombie? No, <laughs> I, I don't. I've never thought of that. Oh, before. you mean no one's ever asked you that question before? <laughs> no, and I will definitely get back to you, Sarah. Oh, no. <laughs> what? You have a first instinct. So like when I say the word zombie to you, uh, what's the first image that comes to your head? Just like uh, a woman with happy hair, probably like mine, and no eyeballs, and just walking around sort of nicely, but blindly looking for something just grabbing and that's my zombie 
Okay. That is, That's thank you for one. that. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to need to go outside and into the sunshine and maybe give myself a hug after this. What about you, Sarah? Uh, yeah. What's your favorite zombie? Yeah. I was a zombie enthusiast. Definitely not so much anymore, but uh, it was just the thrill of the chase and the thrill of pinning yourself against the horde. It was that part of the genre that I really thought was fun, trying to figure out, okay, how to survive. That part of the genre was fun to think about. Adrian, is there anything that you would like to convey to our our listeners about events that are coming up? Z is for zombie, of course, starts October 19th and runs through the 29th. Uh, at the Lesher Center in Walnut Creek. And what else would you like the audience to know? To be honest, I don't have much else going on in terms of the shows at the moment. I do perform on another ensemble or another duo, I should say, called Mispronounce every so often. And we we perform in different theaters. So if at some point that happens, I will let you know. <laughs> oh, please do. And thank you for your time today, Adrian. This yeah, was you. so fun. Val, do you have anything that you would like to ask Adrian before we sign off? No, just uh, wishing you luck on all your performances. And I can't wait to see you again on Zia's for Zombie. Thank you. And thank you both so much for inviting me. This was really fun. Thank you. Okay, thank bye. You. And that's our show. If you think improv sounds like fun, it is. If you think you'd like to try improv, it's easy. Just go to SynergyTheater.com and click on School of Improv. Synergy Theater offers beginner, advanced, and master classes. Synergy Theater is also on Facebook. Please rate, review, and follow this podcast. Your support makes a difference. Synergy Theater is a 501c3 tax-deductible nonprofit that depends on the participation of current and future star supporters and improvisers like you. Thank you.